0: This this morning we will continue our study in Luke, and so we will turn to Luke chapter 6 and read verses 6 through 16. Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 16. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to destroy it. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judith, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Alice. Well, we're continuing Gospel of Luke, as you just heard Alice read. Our subtitle to this series has been called Accomplished Among Us. Accomplished Among Us. And this morning, we continue to look at this Sabbath controversy, back-to-back back, back Sabbath issues here. Remember, just a quick recap, the Gospel of Luke, written by Luke. He was a companion of Paul, but written to this man, Theophilus, uh, that was talked about in the introduction. Theophilus was a prominent Gentile man we know because he was called the excellent Theophilus by Luke. We don't know much about him, but from the thrust of the opening verses of the book, we get the sense that he was a new convert to Christianity, somebody new to the faith, And maybe he had some sense uh, and he wasn't quite sure that he belonged in this new community. And that's one of the things I love about the Gospel of Luke. Whether you're an insider today and consider yourself an insider, not only here at Bethany Church but a follower of Christ, or whether you consider yourself an outsider today and maybe not sure about Jesus, Luke writes to both because he's writing to a man that's not quite sure himself either. So that's why I love Luke, because it's for us. And and actually, we want to be a church that that takes the same view, a church for the insider, but a church for maybe the outsider who's not quite sure and can have a place to explore Jesus Christ and his gospel. Here's what Luke says in his purpose for writing. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also. Having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught, the things accomplished among us. And so far, Luke has been establishing Jesus' authority, his authority over forgiveness, his authority over the physical world, over the spiritual world, over the demonic, over Satan and the temptation, and over salvation. And Bob did a great job. One of our elders last week, beginning this controversy of the of the Sabbath and Jesus' authority over the Sabbath, the ongoing controversy over the intent and use of the Sabbath in Luke six. The Sabbath comes from the Ten Commandments, Exodus twenty. You see these verses as well. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. To the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the controversy that continues today, the controversy was over how how is this commandment observed and why. What's the heart of the commandment? Was it about the form, the keeping of the Sabbath, or about the function, worship and rest found in the Sabbath? The Pharisees struggled to see the heart of Jesus, uh, of the rest that's available in Jesus, and we do too, actually. Remember, he had just said to them, the verse above, we look at verse 5 there, he had just said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, Notice he didn't say, I've come to destroy the Sabbath, do away with the Sabbath or the rules, but that he's Lord of it. This is what he is here for. I'm Lord of Sabbath. He's here for rest. He's actually all about the Sabbath, really, Jesus. So this morning we're going to look at three truths that are going to point us to the true intent of internal Sabbath rest, where we find it and how we can give it also. That's what we're going to do. The, inter- the intent of the Sabbath, where we find it, how we give it. So grab your outline. We probably got it open already. And the scripture open to this Luke 6. As we look at our first truth, the controversy over the Sabbath was over the intent of observation. Why are we doing it? Controversy was over this intent. What is the purpose of the Sabbath? Why are we doing it? You know, preacher's purpose in the beginning of an introduction for any message is to set up our need, or why we need this passage, or the truth it's gonna teach, or set up some kind of crisis so you should want to listen. And it's actually really simple this morning for me. My job's really simple this morning. It really just takes one question. Are you ever tired? <laughs> That's it. Are you ever tired? If your answer yes to that, this, this message is for you. Are you ever physically worn out? Uh, Externally worn out in body or in joints, yeah? Or mind, just tired in mind or brain. Well, how about internally in your soul and heart? You ever worn out there? Have you ever had an internal weariness that comes maybe even from a restlessness of feeling like inside you've got to prove your worth? You've got to prove your existence there's one author called I was reading this week. We have this internal restless murmur in our heart, which makes us exhausted. We need to understand the discipline of Sabbath rest, and we need Jesus' ultimate rest he gives us. You know, there's probably never a culture that has been uh, had such an out of whack relationship with work as we have. We have people that work too much. What do we call them? Workaholics, yeah, we people that work too much, place too much importance on work, too much of their identity in their job, and at the expense of family and friendships and church because of work. We struggle with retirement, don't we? Especially in those first few years. Some of you've been through that. You've worked for forty years, and then those first few years, you're like, "What is my purpose? <laughs> what am I doing?" If I'm not working, who am I? What's my purpose? What's my existence? Why am I here? Well, we also have, uh, as we have an out-of-whack relationship with work, we also do with rest. We kind of think, well, I'll work hard all year long, and if I just, you know, could take a few weeks off, stop working, I'll I'll get some rest. That's not always the case, is it? We're naive about work and rest, too. When rest is a life-or-death-actually situation, it's, our, it's life and death. We can't live without rest. And yet we don't know how to get it many times. Whether it's the external fatigue or the internal restless murmur that makes us exhausted. We can't live without it, but we don't know how to get it. So we have less time to rest and we don't know how to, and actually have the ability to rest. You know, as hard as we can be on the Pharisees for their extra rules that they've added on to the Sabbath and there was a lot they added on, One of the reasons for them adding those rules is because rest has actually never been normal for anybody. It's not really a normal state we take to easily. And and some of those rules were there as guardrails to make sure that they would do something that they weren't really inclined to do, to stop actually, and rest and, and, and to not do anything or to focus on worship of the Lord. They were like guardrails to make them do the thing God wanted to do. Stop and rest. Work six days, take one. In verse six through seven, we see here another Sabbath controversy now over work and rest. Let me read it again. On another Sabbath, verses six and seven, just those two, look down at your text. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. He's always going there. And he was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. So here's a man with a withered hand. Means it was shriveled, dried up, withered, who was probably no doubt suffering with his own work identity. Wouldn't he have been? He only has one usable hand. We're doers, aren't we? We use our hands to do a lot of things, whether it's dishes or gardening or changing the oil or washing windows or, or hugging our loved ones. We use our hands, all those things. We carry things, we build things, and here's this man with a shriveled hand. Have you lost the ability to do some things you once could do? Yeah, and you can relate to this man. You can relate to him. You might think, well, maybe, well, the loss of one hand. I mean, he's, you know, maybe that's maybe he, that's forcing him to rest. He should be more more restful. But anybody who's ever lost an ability knows that's silly an ability they once had, something they once could do, and now it's gone. Here's a man now with this one withered hand that needs the very kind of rest that Jesus can offer. But the Pharisees, as we read in verse 7, they're looking for a reason in this moment to accuse Jesus when they want to see him break the Sabbath rules. The intent. What was the intent of this Sabbath? The intent of the gift of the Sabbath from God, was where the controversy was centered. The Pharisees placed more of an emphasis on the form, the form of keeping of Sabbath over the function, the purpose, the intent to give us rest, to give us wholeness, to to build relationship as Jesus does with this man on the Sabbath, and to worship. Function they placed emphasis on over form, the intent. What was it? They emphasize rules, as we talked about last week too, over, they emphasize rules over and above the need to show this man mercy and relief and rest and peace that he points to. The very day that was given to them as rest became, for the Pharisees, a work of its own to bolster up and quiet down that internal murmur. That they had because they had it too we all have it that 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 internal murmur of needing to produce and perform and and matter and make a difference but that is all of our struggle with our relationship to work whether it's employment or just your to-do list it's why we have so much trouble resting we all have our set standards we want to live up And many of them, even for some of our own, are beyond even biblical requirements at times. The standards we set for ourselves. And when we live up to that work and we we find ourselves keeping our standards, what happens to us usually? I'm doing pretty good. We feel good about ourselves and, and, and we feel at times prideful. And then, if we've got those standards and others aren't keeping them, that can cause us sometimes to look down on others who aren't keeping our standards, which is what the Pharisees were doing. But then, watch out if you don't keep our standards, what happens to us? If that's where our worth and value is and we we're trying to just quiet the internal murmur with keeping of rules and standards, if that doesn't happen and we break them, what do we do? We berate ourselves, we beat ourselves up and lash out at others we failed at our work. Here's the key. The problem isn't the presence of work in our lives. Work has been around since bef- the Garden of Eden before the fall, and it'll be around in the new heaven and the earth. So the problem isn't the presence of work in your life. The problem in our life is the absence of rest. That's the problem. Our restless hearts, what are they like? I was thinking of this week a way to try to think about it. They're like a, a, a great white shark. You can kind of, oh, you can see them there, yeah. The restlessness of our hearts. You know, great white sharks, and there's a few other fish, they lack certain muscles that other fish have. Muscles that will pump the water over their gills, whether they're swimming or sleeping or just uh, floating standing still not standing floating still they have to continue actually do you know great whites have to continue to move always with their mouths open to push water over their gills so in other words if a great white shark stops moving what happens to it it dies stops moving it dies it's dead it's gone it has to always keep moving to make sure that it's alive a lot of times we live our lives that way. If I stop, if I just stop, maybe you think I'll never start again, maybe. But if I stop, I mean, who am I? I I'm nothing. Am I dead if I don't do this? We look at work that way. And not just our job, but the pressure to, to get things done, to be more efficient, to take on more. Stop moving or, and, and I die. Stop producing. What good am I? I die. I die. Now again, the problem isn't work. It's good to work. Work is good. The problem isn't good deeds, trying to do good things to the Lord. The problem is the absence of rest and a heart that is resting in Jesus' work. We too, like the Pharisees who look to the Sabbath for rules, for righteousness, we look to our work at times, our standards, our productivity to matter. Even religious work, actually. If I do things for God, God will bless me. Those subtle bargains we make in our heart and our mind and our soul with God, bargains we never probably would say out loud. It's one of the reasons some of us have the absolute hardest time saying no to people and things and opportunities. Because if I stop, I die. But Jesus knew the Sabbath was there for us. The intent of the Sabbath was for the goodness of men and women. It was for us. That was the intent, not to turn into another work to do. It was for us. And what could be better? What could be more life-giving? What could be more healing than healing this man's hand on the Sabbath? Let's get that guy off the screen so our collective like blood pressure can go down and heart rate <laughs> They're kind of goofy looking, actually. They're kind of round, like an oval, but wait till they open their mouth, and you know how terrifying they are. If you grew up as a kid in the 70s or 80s, uh, Jaws, you like, wanted to not even swim in pools. That was my problem. When I was like seven, eight, six. Jesus says in Mark chapter two, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. Man. Not man for the Sabbath. The, that's the intent there. This is where the controversy is. What's the intent of it? It was made for us. It was made for you to rest, not the other way around. In other words, Jesus says here, I know what you need. I know you need physical rest, but I also know you need spiritual rest from your striving. I stop, I die. So Sabbath, Jesus says, is a gift for us. That's its intent. That was its purpose. It's not to be a burden. It's not man for the Sabbath, so it's a burden. The controversy, as we said, was over the intent of the day and what it was really meant to accomplish in our lives. Rest for your body, rest for your soul, or another form of of working for our righteousness. With God, rest. We need it. Let's look at where we find it in our second truth. The Sabbath we need now points to the future restoration. The Sabbath we need now points to the future restoration. Point If point one was the controversy over the intent. So now where do we get it? Why do we need it? Where do we get it? In verses 8 through 11 of this chapter 6 here, Jesus now, as he's in the temple, as the the controversy is is brewing, he knows in his omniscience what the scribes and Pharisees are thinking about him. He's divine. He's God. There were moments when he exercised that and did know the hearts and minds and the intent of people. And they were thinking, we do it this way, Jesus. This is how it is done. Are you going to go against our tradition again? Are you going to do it again? Again? So here we see Jesus, much like as Bob shared last week, as David and his men did in the last story, when they ate bread from the temple, which was supposed to be unlawful. Here Jesus, what does he do? In a pinch, something's going on. Like David and his men, in a pinch, they ate the bread in the temple. But here he is in a pinch. There's this man with his hand. In a pinch, Jesus sets aside the ceremonial, the worship regulations for the sake of mercy. He's willing to set them aside for the sake of mercy, of giving this man here with the withered hand, giving him wholeness and, and giving him goodness on this day. He's willing, in a pinch, to set aside the ceremonial worship regulations. Now, the moral law in the Bible, Jesus never sets aside. He never sets aside the moral law. We never see a situation in the Bible where someone claims, you know what, I was lonely so I committed adultery and so therefore it's excused. No, 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 we never see anything like that. You just don't see the moral law ever set aside. It's always in place. But here, I think the ceremonial law, they're shown to be provisional. They had a purpose. And they were set aside by Jesus in this moment because something greater than that ceremonial law was here or someone greater, Jesus Christ himself, who is the law. The Lord of the Sabbath was there. And so after asking them the question, is it okay to do a good thing on the Sabbath day? Is it okay? Can I do this today? He asked the man to stretch out his hand. And it must have looked something like a balloon filling with air as this shriveled hand became full of of, of life again. It must have looked really, really strange. And he stretches out his hand, and it becomes this working, fully formed hand, just like the other one right in front of their eyes. And this restoration of this hand, as good as it was for the man, as much as it changed his life forever, points to the Lord of rest, points to Jesus, points to even a greater rest that Christ gives as Lord of the Sabbath. You want rest, Jesus says, I am the Lord of rest, he said in verse five. Your physical fatigue, your breakdown of your body, The restfulness of your soul, the inner murmur of your heart, these all point to the true rest that only I, Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, can give you. What did Augustine say? He said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, God. The Sabbath we need now, which is in that man's life, it was the healing of his hand. For you, it might be just a good night of sleep, right? It might just be some relief from chronic pain you felt. I don't know. We each have our own, maybe it's just mental fatigue and tiredness. You're not thinking as clear as you used to. Maybe you're just exhausted because you've got a bunch of kids running around the house and you're tired, but we all have some kind of rest. And the Sabbath we need now, our point two says is points to the future restoration that Jesus will bring. This man's healing was just a visible, tiny picture. We called it a hole punch a few weeks ago. It like gave us a little window, peephole, into what's coming for all of us, for all time. It's like a you know little peephole, a keyhole, or I guess you look on it through on a door. It kind of distorts things, but you see a wider view. That's what kind of the miracles are. They're like little hole punches into what's coming for all of us, a peep through the the peephole. It was pointing us, foreshadowing for us the ultimate rest that's coming in ultimate healing that's coming for all of us in Jesus. That's why it was so good. If you want rest, whether it's physical, spiritual, emotional, If you want rest, you have to go to Jesus for it, especially that inner rest. And if you think you've gone to Him for rest and you don't feel restful, you maybe don't understand what He gives. We're going to talk about that. So, what does He give us? What does He give us? What does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is Lord of rest? Well, rest, this idea of rest, actually, if you've um, read through Genesis before, especially the beginning, goes back to the beginning of all things, to the beginning of, back to creation, when God made all things and then rested himself. Do you remember that in Genesis, when he made all things in six days? He looked at them and he made something and he said, oh, this is good. Remember those? He made those uh, things on all the six days. Oh, that's good. He made something else. Oh, and that's good too. It's really good. And then it says, on the sixth day he finished and Genesis records, see the verses coming up. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Not just good, but very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he'd done and he what? Rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he'd done in creation. So God sees all the things that are good that he made, the things that are very good, and it's finished, it's done, it's finished, it's completed, and he enters into rest. Ah. But have you ever wondered how can God rest? Does God need rest? I mean, does he get tired? Does he grow weary? Does he nod off while he's driving the car? No, right? If he did, he wouldn't be God. If God got tired, he's not God. So so what does it mean that God rests? Well, as he's entering into finishing creation and entering into kind of, a, in a way, this this... this, this his cosmic world that he has made—he's entering in in this moment of resting to ruling and reigning over the entire cosmic creation, which is very good, and that means he's very satisfied with it. Perfect satisfaction, totally perfect shalom and peace. Ah, oh, everything is as it should be, and it all looks very good. That kind of rest. That's the kind of rest he entered into. Now we know a little little bit of that kind of rest. A little bit. Maybe when we finish a good project and it's done. We've been working on a, a DIY project at home and it's finally finished or mowing the lawn or dinner's finally on the table at Thanksgiving or you hit send on an email with the project attached you've been working on or you're, as students in here, your research paper is finally done or you're finished studying or finals are over, you know, or you hit save on the computer last time. Ah, it's done. It's just that one brief moment, right? We know this a little bit, this kind of rest. Ah, It's done. It's done. It's good. It's finished. It's very good. It's done. Oh, but how long does that last usually? <laughs> how long does that last? A, a fraction of second, seconds, maybe a night, maybe a couple days, and all of a sudden, what happens again? That internal murmur kind of percolates again inside. It's kind of the sense of a, it's a self-justification, really. Here's why my life matters. Here's my purpose for living. Sometimes we get that for just a brief moment, but how quickly and fleeting that is, that satisfaction is fleeting. How do we know? We struggle with rest. (laughs) That's how we know. That's how you know. You struggle with rest. The rest that this miracle points to and to the future restoration is hinted at in Hebrews 4. Take a look. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So if Joshua couldn't do it for you, people of God, we need the true and better Joshua to bring you a rest that lasts, one that actually does work yeah, rest. Give me that kind of rest. If Joshua's rest didn't work, the rest he gave them, give me that kind of rest. What that means is that when you come to Jesus and you rest in him, it means you can look at your life and your work the way God looked at his creation and be totally satisfied. That's the kind of rest I want. That's the kind of rest that gets us through all those frustrations of maybe things we used to be able to do and couldn't do or or the fatigue of parenting or work. The rest that comes by looking at Jesus because God is satisfied, absolutely satisfied with Jesus like he was at creation. Oh, it's very good, Jesus. It's very good what you've done for these people. It's very good. Everything that could possibly need to be done so that you could enter that eternal rest rest has been done by Jesus. That's what we're getting at here. That's what Hebrews 4 is getting at here. A better rest than Joshua could give you. Anything I could possibly need to do has been finished by him. The real reason your external physical work is so tired, is so tiring, so exhausting, is because that work, underneath that work, there's another work going on. It's that internal work the restless murmur. And everyone struggles with it. It's the work we strive for when we just can't believe, just can't rest in him and believe the fact that Jesus completed everything, everything for you. And everyone struggles with this. As we said, religious people do it. If I do these good things, God will bless me. But even if you're here today and not a follower of Jesus, you're here today, you're not a follower of Christ. Your heart's wired the same way. You've got your own standards, whatever those are, of what is good work, and your identity is set on meeting those standards, but you know it's never over. Yeah, maybe you get a moment of it, a moment of peace, a moment of rest. Ah, it's very good, one of those moments. But then the inner murmur creeps in again. What would it be like for you if you came to Jesus Christ and trusted and knew absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt inside your heart that you are okay with God? That's the kind of rest Hebrews 4 is talking about. That's the kind of rest a withered hand that's healed is pointing us towards. There's nothing you can do if he's finished the work, there's nothing you could do to make him love you more or less. Rest. It's finished. We all find our meaning by serving something. But if if it's Jesus, you serve not to get his rest because in him you already have it. That's why we serve. That's why we work. Not to gain and get the rest, but because he's already given it to us. He's accomplished everything. He's done it. God's looked at him and said, oh, Jesus, very, very good. Well, the Pharisees in this moment, it's a turning point. The other Gospels record for us that not only are they looking for a reason to accuse him, they're actually now looking for a reason to kill him. Look at verse 11 there. They were filled with fury after the healing and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. As I said, the other gospels say they are now planning to kill him. And the irony is when they killed him, guess what? They made him Lord of the Sabbath. That's the irony. When they killed him, they made him Lord of the Sabbath. Do you know how? If you watch Jesus in the gospels, on the cross, Jesus is very, very restless. He's writhing, isn't he, in the Gospels? He's crying out on the Gospels. He's seeking relief, just give me something to drink. But not just because of the physical anguish, but because of something Isaiah said. Look at what he said. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot rest, cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There's no rest. There's no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Jesus is not at peace on the cross. He's restless. Not because he's wicked. But because in that moment, he's taking on your infinite restlessness that comes from our own evil, our own sin, our, our own wickedness. That's why he's restless on the cross. Oh, yes, the physical too. But so much more. He's like a tossing sea. He's like mire and dirt that's stirred up. It's like a tossing sea facing the judgment you and I deserved. That's how he becomes the Lord of rest. 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse we've talked a lot about and mentioned from time to time. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the rest. Ah, very good, Jesus, the righteousness of God. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God imputes to Jesus all your evil strivings. What did Isaiah say? Even our good works are like filthy rags. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That means when you place your faith in him, he puts all your evil on him. And what does he then place on you? All that very good, very good Jesus. He puts all Jesus' righteousness on on you because he lived the life we couldn't the work you should have done the work i i I should have done and he died the death we couldn't and he gives you something so much greater shalom rest eternity so much greater than a, a healed hand and god looks at you and because of jesus says ah very good that's the rest you want That's the rest you need. It's finished. And Jesus cried that on the cross, didn't he? It is finished. The work is done. It's done. That is the only thing that will quiet the inner murmur. That's it. There's nothing else. You can try anything else. In fact, Solomon did, didn't he? He tried everything under the sun to quiet the inner murmur of his heart. Everything. And it all proved to be vanity, except for his relationship with God. That's the only thing that will give your soul perfect rest. It's the only thing that will put your earthly work, which is good, in a proper perspective. Or your, uh, your retirement, and put that in a proper perspective. Or your uh, ability to, uh, inability to do the things you once be, used to be able to do. It is finished. That's the only thing. Or maybe you're younger, and you've got a ton of work ahead of you in your career life. Maybe you're not even sure what your career is going to be yet. Or you've got a ton of parenting work ahead of you. You've got littles, toddlers, elementary school kids, and you've got a ton of it ahead of you, and you worry, can I do this? Are we going to be able to get them to 18? I hope. (laughs) Am I up to the task? Uh, What if I screw up my kids? Well, let me tell you this. You will. You will at some point. But if you realize Jesus gives perfect rest based on his work for you, work hard, do your best, pray tons, and leave the results to him. It's finished. And trust our kids to him. Raise them, disciple them, love them, pray for them, and trust the Lord. They're ultimately his, not ours. We're stewards. And you will screw them up at some point, right? Right? Anybody have adult kids who want to affirm that for us today? You will, right? I mean, you just do. (laughs) See, the work beneath the work is never finished except in Jesus. Guess what that means, though? You don't have to work so hard to keep the world spinning. He's done it. He's doing it. Let's look at our third truth. We need the rest in him. This healing points us to it. Eternal rest is in him. Let's look at the third one. How do we give it? Jesus commissions his followers to bring Sabbath rest to all. We close here with Jesus' authority to call his disciples, as he does here, the 12 whom he chooses out of all the others. And I think what Luke wants us to see here in the Gospels, we're meant to see here with the placement of this calling right here, As Jesus talked about new wine, remember, just a week or two ago, and new garments, and a new understanding of salvation and rest. So here now, Israel's being given two twelve new leaders, no longer the sons of Jacob, it's now the twelve disciples. And something new is happening here. New wine, new clothing, new ways of looking at things. He calls the twelve disciples, and they're listed here for us, at the end of this passage. And he prays for wisdom all night long, probably discussing with the father the choosing of the 12 and bringing them before him by name and and, and conversing with his father about the 12. And what is he commissioned them to do? How were they to bring this rest to all? We talked about the Missio Dei, as David mentioned in the mission time. What are they to do? Well, the story told us, the Jesus story right before Miracle told us. They are to bring to the people gospel mercy and gospel truth. Mercy and truth. That's our sub number three. So a doctor in the, on the Sabbath was allowed to give healing or care on the Sabbath if the injury was life-threatening. Only if it was life-threatening. But here, of course, it's serious. But it's not life-threatening. It's only a withered hand. That's serious. I'm not dismissing that. But compared to life or death, it's not that serious. So Jesus could have waited. This wasn't like somebody at death's door. He could have waited till the next day for this man. And he could have avoided a lot of of, of hustle and bustle and and controversy. All he had to do was wait till the next day. But he doesn't. Why? Why? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Gospel mercy is so critical to sharing Jesus' rest. Remember, the rest we, we, we can give, the mercy Jesus gives there, the mercy we can give now points to the future restoration and mercy. So for Jesus on this Sabbath, What was the answer to his question? Here was the question. Jesus said to them, to us, that's us, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life, sort of tongue in cheek or destroy it. The answer is, for Jesus in this moment, a refusal to do good is to do evil. To not show mercy to this man in this moment, I think Jesus is saying, to not do the good thing with this opportunity would have been wrong. In other words, those who have received mercy will show mercy. And to not show mercy is to understand, or to show that you don't understand the mercy Jesus has shown. I don't don't care how religious you appear on the external, how many church services you've been to, how many times you've read your Bible. We can't walk away from this miracle of Jesus and the calling of his disciples, which happened right next to it, without being challenged. If you don't care for the welfare of others or for the salvation of the lost, you're lost. You are lost. I know those are heavy, hard words, but Jesus is here. He's asking the question, is it good to do this? Is it right to do this? The Pharisees' lack of concern for this man's welfare, who's in their midst, and they've done it other times, and we have too. Their lack of concern for this man's welfare and the concern of keeping the law and the externals shows absolute proof that they weren't lawkeepers, actually. Because Jesus in this moment says, What's, Is it right for me to do this? Is it right? When we have received God's mercy and been called into his family of disciples, like he's doing right here, that's why Luke puts it right here, we will care for the welfare of individuals. Mercy called Mercy Ministries, food, clothing, housing, education, put in their human rights, which are really God-given rights, put in their their pro-life rights, put in their race relations, put in their sexual struggles people have, put in their income equality even. These aren't woke social justice issues, they're gospel mercy issues. Gospel mercy the people of God need to lean into. Now, a lot of gray area, a lot of room for it to be a discussion to be had over who can meet these needs best, family, government, church, of course, all kinds of gray room for discussion about who can meet the needs of people, mercy ministries, of course, we got to discuss that. And all kinds of discussions that could be had around should it just happen organically or should it be policy-based or should there be an institution to do it, should there be a a group or an organization that does it, we can discuss all those things all day, and they're good to talk about. And there's totally room to agree and disagree in the church over those types of things. But at the very least, we can't throw out the baby mercy with woke bathwater, Right? we got to at least lean into some of these issues. Jesus doesn't let us do that here. That's the challenge for us today. And there was silence in the room when Jesus asked his question. <laughs> silence. Gospel mercy and gospel truth in Jesus have always gone together but I fear sometimes as Christians we've been frightened off because of labels put on those works and activities. And remember, I said all kinds of room for discussion on how we do those and which area does them best, family, church, government. We don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Jesus doesn't let us do that. Disciples bring Jesus' rest to others by bringing gospel mercy and gospel truth. They go hand in hand Jesus show, shows it by healing a hand, right? <laughs> they go hand in hand. Let the story of the healing of this man's hand, let, it, let, it, let that challenge us today a little bit. We, we are a merciful church, Bethany, and you've shown that as we looked at this missionary couple today. How much mercy have you shown around the world by giving so that churches can be planted and others hear the mercy of the gospel and the good love and works that came? So please don't hear that we're not that, but guess what? We can grow in it more. I think all of us would say that. Let the story of the healing of this man's hand challenge us with that today. And here's a question to ponder as we leave. Where or to whom do you need to show more mercy? Where or to whom do you need to show more mercy? Maybe you've been a little harsh judgmental or thought, eh, they deserve it anyways, we can do that. Ponder that question today and ask the Lord to show you. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for being a God of mercy who was willing to set aside the ceremonial or the regulations for the sake of loving someone in real time. Would you love us in real time now, Spirit? Spirit? shape our hearts, mold our hearts, show us people, places, individuals, groups, whoever that you want us to show more mercy to. And as we go about that work, that love, we do it in a restful way, in a glad way, in a joyful way, because we know gospel truth too, that you said it is finished. So stretch us in that, grow us in that. Let us not be a people that tear apart mercy and truth but hold them together like truth and love. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.